Our scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, and Genesis chapter 48, verses 12 through 19. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. Genesis chapter 48, verse 12. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. This is the word of the Lord. We're opening up this morning uh, with one verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of uh, Joseph's sons, and he worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Just one verse. One verse to capture, one verse to summarize the whole of Jacob's life. If you know Jacob, in the book of Genesis, Jacob's life spans chapters and chapters. A whole, he's one of the great patriarchs uh, in the Old Testament. And if you take all of Jacob's narrative, the author says, by faith, this is what Jacob did. The author takes this episode, this narrative at the end of Jacob's life from Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 through 14, that whole, or 19, the whole narrative there, while Jacob is on his deathbed, the author says, this is Jacob's act of faith. Uh, Jacob's on his deathbed, and so Joseph, his son, now pretty much the ruler over Egypt. He was second in command, but really acted as the prime minister. Joseph, he brings his own sons, two sons, to Jacob. He's got Manasseh, who's the elder, Ephraim, who is the younger, and he goes to Jacob for the blessing. But Jacob's old. He's practically blind. Joseph is this man of culture. He's this man of society. He understands the law and the cultural laws of his day. And so he brings Manasseh and he brings Ephraim to Jacob for the blessing. The writer chooses this moment at the end of Jacob's life as the triumphant expression of Jacob's faith. It sums up his entire spiritual journey. And this spiritual journey shaped Jacob in four ways, and those four things can shape us as well. One, through his spiritual journey, Jacob, it shaped Jacob's view of God. Two, it shaped Jacob's values. Three, it shaped Jacob's view of sin and suffering and, and failure. And lastly, it shaped Jacob's obedience. Jacob's view of God, his values, his view of sin and suffering and his failures and his obedience. That's really the whole of the Christian life, if you think about it. 
So first, uh, we're going to look at how Jacob's spiritual journey shaped his view of God. We have to go all the way back to that narrative that's printed in your bulletins in Genesis chapter 48. I kind of, uh, we kind of laid out just a blessing portion of it. But he, he, look at verse 15. It says, the God who has been, God who has been my shepherd all my life. It's the first time in the entire Bible we see God being referred to as a shepherd. That theme of God being a shepherd is, 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 permeates all through scripture. And yet this is the first time that God is referred to as a shepherd. What do we learn from that? To call God a shepherd is metaphorically to call ourselves sheep. Right? That's actually a self-insult. It's really a self-deprecating uh, title because you have to think about what you're saying here. Most animals, most animals, if you let them loose, if they run out of the house, if you let them go, most animals uh, can survive. They can survive in the wild for some time. They get away from their owner. They can live, but not sheep. If sheep get away from their master, if sheep get away from their owner, they're going to die. It's inevitable. They will die. It's why you never see sheep in the wild. There's no such thing as wild sheep. They're so helpless. They're so stupid. They're so foolish. They can't find shelter on their own. They can't find water on their own. They can't find food on their own. They're helpless with disease. Uh, in, the, in the face of disease, they're helpless. Uh, they, they can't protect themselves in danger. Think about this. Even a dog, even a cat can survive for a while on their own. But sheep, they constantly need care. They need constant care. They need constant watch. So to call God your shepherd is to say, I need constant care. I need constant watch. I'm helpless on my own. I'm stupid. I'm foolish. What did Jacob learn over the course of his life as he sees his son, who is now risen to become one of the most powerful men in his country, to see his grandchildren? This is Jacob, penniless Jacob, back in the day. He sees the faithfulness of God, he sees the grace of God. More than Jacob being faithful to take care of his own life, more than Jacob watching over himself, protecting over himself, God is his shepherd. God is constantly watching over us. Psalm chapter 120, 122, verse 3, what do we see here? He who neither sleeps nor slumbers. God is tireless over his watch, over his people. Now, every other religion, every other religion it's representative God says what? Whether it's uh, your wealth, whether it's your children, whether it's family, whatever it is that you view functionally as your God, it always says you need to work. You need to seek. You need to do research. You need to find. You need to build. You need to work and work and work. But that means, you know what that means? That means we're horses. That's, that's assuming, it's presuming that we are horses. We can actually live on, the, live on our own in the wild, but you can't, you see. Jacob says we can't. Jacob tried. Jacob learned that we are sheep and God is our shepherd. We need a shepherd. We need God to watch over us because we're always in danger. We're constantly wandering. We're always wanting to be distant from our master. We need a God that says, we need a God, really, that says, I'm always searching for you. I'm the one that's finding you. I'm the one that's leading you. I'm the one that's guiding you. And I've made a way. I fulfilled the law. Because we would never obey the law on our own. We're always forgetful 
And so God has to remind us sometimes through hardship over and over and over again, we're desperately in need of the grace of God in our lives. Next verse, verse 16, Jacob says, the angel who delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. That's what he says. It's an obvious reference to what happened to him at Peniel. Earlier in the book of Genesis, about 12 chapters earlier, Genesis 36, what happened there? Earlier in this book, God comes to Jacob in physical form. In verse 15, in Genesis chapter 48, verse 15, he says, uh, May God, before whom my fathers and Abraham and Isaac walked, may God, who had been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel, so he says, may God, may God, the angel, he's clearly speaking about the same thing. He's referring to the angel as God. May the angel who delivered me, he says, he's clearly referring to God. To that one night, the angel, it's a reference to the one night in Genesis chapter 36, when God came to Jacob in physical form and wrestled him, wrestled him all night, and there God blessed him. He said, with that blessing that I've received, may I bless these boys. That's what he says. It's one of the most remarkable passages, not just in the book of Genesis, but the whole Bible. And uh, that night, Jacob's wrestling. He's wrestling God in the dark. Pitch black. There was no electricity back then. Pitch darkness. He's wrestling with God. Goes to the ground all night. He's making a move. God makes a counter move. He's struggling with God. God cripples him. God maims him. To that day, he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. But there he learned how lost he was. That's when he realized There he realized that all his life he was using his skills and his wiles, his schemes to outsmart other people, to manipulate other people, to build his own life, to increase his potential, to increase his freedom, to increase his joy, to increase his own worth. But he realized at that moment, on the ground, maimed, just crippled, reeling in pain, maimed in the dark, that he's been running from God all his life. He's been running from God all his life. He thought he was running to potential and joy and freedom and worth, but he was actually running from true potential, from true freedom, from true joy, from true worth. That wrestling match was a microcosm of his entire life. He was wrestling God all his life. He thought he was wrestling his brother. He thought he was wrestling his father. He thought he was wrestling his family and his uncle, even himself, but he realized that he was wrestling God all his life. He saw his brokenness. He saw his foolishness. He realized right then and there, reeling in pain, not being able to walk, he's sheep. He's a sheep. You know, sheep, they look docile. But every account that you read about sheep is that they're not very docile. They're very stubborn. So not only are they dumb, but they're stubborn. And even while they're in the face of danger, if you go and try to rescue sheep, They're not thankful. They're resisting. They're constantly resisting. They say that you have to wrap the sheep around your neck and hold them fast as you walk back. That's what they say because they're constantly fighting your rescue. That's us. That's Jacob, maimed on the ground, wrestling with God, completely broken, and you realize there that that's him, constantly running from God, constantly resisting God, And so this is really the pivotal moment of his life. It shaped his view of God. 
Because there he realized that God didn't come to punish him. God didn't come to hurt him or destroy him. I mean, his name was deceiver. Jacob actually means deceiver. He is the liar. And yet, that's in his name. He deserved to die. He realized that. God just touches him, it says in Genesis 36, and he falls and he's reeling in pain and he realizes this God has immense power and he deserved to die. He's the deceiver. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve is the deceiver. The life he lived was as a liar. He was was the deceiver. We're all like that. All of us live like that. So to come to God as a lawgiver If God was just a judge, if God was just a lawgiver, then he would punish. That punishment would make sense. And Jacob's here, he realizes that's what he deserves. That's how he used to view God. That was how he viewed God formerly. When you look at God that way, what happens? When you do wrong, when you make a mistake, you expect punishment. But when you do right, You expect blessing. God actually owes you. So you're actually not coming to God in humility when you do wrong. You're coming to God in pride, you see. But Jacob saw that night that God was a shepherd. This needed to happen to him. God sought him in his lostness. The darkness that they were wrestling, it was a microcosm of his whole life. He was always blind. He was always in darkness. But God came to him in his lostness to bless him. And he hurt him, yes. He wrestled him, yes. He maimed him. He tired him out to change him, to wake him up, to break him. He literally broke him. He had a limp for the rest of his life. And it shows us that sometimes it's the excruciating pain of our lives. It's the deep suffering in our lives that actually leads us to see that God is our shepherd. It's the greatest irony, isn't it? It's the greatest irony. In this narrative, Genesis chapter 48, you see Jacob, he's one patriarch, talking to another patriarch in Joseph. Joseph is actually now the one that is risen, and Jacob is now old and foolish-looking, blind, right? But you really see Jacob's maturity here. You see his growth. Because here's Manasseh. Manasseh is the older son. And if you remember the laws in those ancient times, those laws were governed by primogeniture, which meant that the older son gets the inheritance, the lion's share of the inheritance. And that really means he gets the doting, he gets the love, he gets all the attention. And Joseph naturally brings Manasseh to the right hand of Jacob, and that's because the right hand is is the place of power. That's where you bestow power, executive authority. So the older son is to get the blessing of the right hand. And Ephraim, the younger, is supposed to get the blessing of the left hand, the lower, the lesser. What does Jacob do? He does something absolutely stunning. Joseph thinks he's making a mistake because he's so foolish and blind. Jacob takes his left hand and puts it on the older son. He takes his right hand and puts it on the younger son. He crosses his arms. That's what it says. And in verse 17 to 18, Joseph, it says Joseph is displeased. That's actually a kind of a, a milder way of putting it. If you look at the actual language, Joseph, what he's doing is he's interrupting. He says, well, what are you doing? He says, no. In the text it says, no, my father. Like he's some gentle, respectful man, but really what, he's indignant. And he says, no, 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 no. What are you doing? He's indignant. The language is almost disrespectful. What he's really saying is, you fool. He's clearly annoyed here. And, uh, and he figures, you know, Jacob's eyes must be so bad now. He can't even look right. 
He can't even see correctly. And so he's just acting a fool. What does Jacob say? I know, my son. I know. He's almost crying. There's this doublet there you kind of see. He says, I know, my son. I know. His eyes are bad. He's old. He's in his deathbed. He says, yeah, I know. I look like a fool. I act like a fool because I'm so old. But I've been a fool all my life. Joseph, don't you see? That's how sheep live. We're foolish. My eyes are bad. Your eyes are good. But you don't see that you are sheep too. You think you're young and strong and powerful. You think you have wealth and power. And so you think you're right. And you think you're wise. But you see, my eyes may be terrible, but I see so clearly now. On one hand, as sheep, you get a deep sense of your wandering. You get a deep sense of your pride and your stubbornness. On the other hand, when you encounter God, you encounter the real shepherd, you experience this deep sense of God's presence for you. You thought you were looking for safety on your own, but here's safety. Here's protection. This is the protection you need, you see. You can trust him. You can trust his word. That's our longest point. It changes our view of God. God is our shepherd. We are a sheep. What that does inevitably, when Jacob encounters the real God, the second thing it did, his journey shaped his values. All his life, he was pursuing the world's values. He realized that. He didn't realize there was a difference back then. He saw that he was pursuing uh, the world's values. It's very different from a life that God had called him to, the gospel. His entire life agenda had changed. Before he was pursuing class, he was fixated on wealth, his pedigree. Now he's being shaped by the grace of God. That's why he switches hands. That's why he does that. And even in the face of Joseph, now Joseph is his son. Joseph is the one that is risen. Joseph is second to the king. Joseph refuses to change, right? What Joseph is saying is, uh, you know, I know what I value. I know what's right. I know what the social order is. I know what the social rules are. And Jacob is saying, yeah, I know that too. I get the social order. I get the rules. I get primogeniture. I know what the world values. Why Joseph is so indignant, he's a man of order. He's a man of society and culture. In the ancient times, it was a patriarchal culture. It was a primogeniture culture. That meant that men were always favored over women. That meant that the elder was always favored over the younger. That meant that the wealthy was always favored over the poor. Now, we look at that, we say, how primitive. But you can't say that, you see. You can't say how primitive. You know why? Because we're not very much different. Today, we say, if you have a certain sized house, if you have a certain size salary, then you must be blessed. Then you must be favored. Then you're okay. If you have a certain type of education, then you must be okay. We're still favoring the wealthy over the poor, you see. We're still favoring the educated over the uneducated, you see. We're still favoring people who are prettier over people who are less beautiful, you see. We're just like Joseph. Joseph values the world. Jacob says, Joseph, don't do that. No, don't do that. God's grace always moves, not to the elder, but to the younger. Not to the more capable, but to the lesser. You don't believe me? He chose Abel, the younger son, over Cain. He chose Isaac, the younger son, over Ishmael. He chose Jacob, the younger son, 
by a hair, but the younger son over Esau. It crossed moral boundaries too. He chose a liar, a deceiver. That was his name over Esau. The seed of salvation came through a barren woman, an older woman, Sarah, not the fertile and beautiful woman, Hagar. The seed of salvation came through the ugly woman in Leah, not the beautiful Rachel. Moses was the prince of Egypt. He was the prince of Egypt. He abandons wealth and power and culture. David was untrained, overlooked as the eighth son. When, when Samuel was choosing the king of Israel after they rejected Saul, the first king, he goes to the house of Jesse and he tells Jesse to bring all his sons. David, the eighth son, wasn't even brought to the table, you see. He was overlooked, untrained, and yet he was chosen over Saul, who was educated, who was trained, who was, who was more kingly looking. You go all the way to the New Testament. You cross moral boundaries there too. Jesus chooses a woman, a promiscuous woman, with terrible theology to become the first missionary of the gospel in John chapter 4. He chooses a tax collector over a Pharisee a respectable Pharisee, a religious insider. He chooses a a moral outsider over a religious insider in Luke 18, you see. By the way, it doesn't say here that God hates Manasseh, right? If you look at verse 19, that's not what Jacob says. Jacob says Manasseh is going to become great too. He's going to become great. He's going to have a lot. But the promise, that blessing, the seed of salvation is going to go through the lesser. God always moves towards those who are overlooked, those who are deemed failures, because his glory and his grace are best demonstrated in the face of failure, in the face of loss. You see that? It points to his own character. His own character is like that. This points to God himself. It's very consistent. It points to his own son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of God working through weakness. That's why he doesn't come on a throne from the sky, you see. He was born in a manger. How many thrones are there in the world? How many mangers are there in the world, you see? Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of God working through weakness, through brokenness, and he was broken. Through disgrace, he was disgraced. Through ultimate suffering and rejection and defeat and death, that's how salvation comes. That's how salvation comes, you see, because God is our shepherd. If God was just a king, if God was just a king, salvation would only come through the law. But we're sheep. We're always wayward. We can't fulfill the law on our own. And as a result, we're broken. We're broken because we wander away from God. We wander away from the law all the time. Every time we have a choice, we do that. And so we're broken. So you know what has to happen? God makes a way for salvation to come through the broken, to heal people who are broken because it's for the broken. You see that? That's what happens. You can't earn salvation. You have to receive it. It's given to you by grace. That's a remarkable gospel, isn't it? Every other blessing in your life, you have to earn it. You have to earn it. You say, accept me for what I have done. The gospel goes completely counter to that. The gospel teaches, you can't accept me for what I have done. It's not enough. I do it with the wrong heart, and I do it all the time. The gospel says, you admit you're weak, 
and you say, I come to you not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what you've done, your merit. You are righteous. You are holy. Jesus Christ is righteous and holy and faithful and good, and he fulfilled the law, and I base my life not what I've done, but what, I, what Christ has done for me. Now, Joseph, he's not quite there. He doesn't quite get it. I mean, he gets it, but he doesn't quite get it. But Jacob, at the end of his life, looking foolish, looking a fool, he gets it, and he gets it very, very clearly. Finally, his journey has brought him here. All of his sin, all of his shame, all of his suffering led him to a real encounter with God, and he gets it. Jacob finally, what you see in this text, and that's why it is the triumphant expression of Jacob's faith in his life. Hebrews chapter 11, 21. By faith, he did this, you see. All his life, finally, it took years and decades, he finally gets it. It shaped his values. It shaped his view of culture. It shaped his view of money. It shaped his view of beauty. It shaped his view of status. Now, Jacob was once like his son Joseph. On one hand, he gets it. He understands God's grace. But on the other hand, it didn't fully get into all the nooks and crannies of his heart, all the things that he was pursuing. We're like that. That's us. Didn't fully shape all of his values. But now he gets it. The gospel shapes our values. It has to shape our values. It may take years. Some of you, coming to the church is the beginning of the continuation of your spiritual journey. Others, you've grown up in the church and you've never departed. And you're somewhere, we always think we're a lot further ahead than we really are. I mean, at the end of the day, our spiritual journey, no matter where you are in your faith, it's reflected and represented in how your values are shaped. You see, is the gospel shaping your sense of worth? There are those of us here in this room who are shaped utterly by things outside of the gospel. We care much more. We're driven much more by what our spouses think of us. We're driven much more by what our significant others think of us. We're driven much more by what our boss thinks of us. We're driven much more by even what your pastor thinks of you. You see, we're driven so much by these things. And the question, is the gospel shaping that? Is the gospel shaping your sense of worth? Is the gospel shaping your sense of uh, wealth, your sense of beauty, your sense of status? I'm going to bring this thought a little bit more closer to home. Even in the church, uh, those of you who are looking to get married, When you're looking to get married, what do you value? Because too often we place so much value on our appearances, don't we? We place too much value when you're looking for the person of the opposite gender to marry. You you put too much value on the appearance, the wealth, the educational status, the family, the career projection or trajectory of the person. We're like Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. Oh, he makes 10,000 a year, right? We do that. Knowing full well that most things in our lives Most things that really matter in our lives are not solved by appearance or wealth or education or career trajectory. Most or even all things in life that are important. No matter how wealthy you are, it's not going to change how healthy you are, you see. And your health is important. (laughs) Nothing can change that. It's all by grace. 
every breath you take all by grace. You see that? We know that, yeah, when I look at another person, it's just their appearance. But the thing is, we don't functionally live that way, and so we put so much value in those things. Under the skin, we're all broken people, you see. We're all broken. We're drunk on appearances, aren't we? It ruins our judgment. And so we avoid Christians with good character because we're looking for a mold in our lives, a social mold. It's a worldly mold. And even worse, we pursue that mold. We want to fit into that mold. That's what we do for ourselves. So on one hand, we say in our community groups, oh, brokenness, that's so important. We need to be broken. And yet we pursue the best jobs that pay the best, punish our bodies, spend most of our times there worrying about it. It's one thing to experience God's grace and have it shape your view of God. It's another thing to have the gospel shape what you value. You see, the gospel shapes our values. The third thing for Jacob and for us is the gospel shapes our view of sin and suffering and our failures. Jacob's now looking back on his life in this passage. And his conclusion is what? God has been my shepherd. That's amazing. If you think about it, it's amazing. Why? Because do you know what kind of life Jacob had? You have to, if you really, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, we're not going to look at every passage, but I'm just going to give you a very brief summary of Jacob's life. He was born second in a culture where being first is important. So he was culturally on the wrong end to begin with. His name is Liar. That's his name. Okay, that's how his parents viewed him. He was raised by a father that didn't love him. He was influ- that just influenced and twisted and distorted his life. And then he worked decades exploiting his family, exploiting his uncle, cheating him. His uncle cheated him, robbed him of some of his best years, the prime years of his life. He was forced to marry a woman he did not love. He was actually tricked into it. Then he ended up marrying a person he did love, and then she died giving birth to one of his children, you see. Then the jo- Joseph, the son that he adored because of his brother's own jealousy, Sold him off as a slave, but Jacob didn't know that. Jacob thought Joseph was dead, so it devastated him. Devastated him. He endured poverty. He endured famine. He endured loss, family brokenness. Ah, but you see, at the end of his life, after enduring all those things, and some of us have endured some tragic things, big traumas in our lives, at the end of his life, now he's able to say, it's amazing. He says, all my life, he's doing a fast-forward you know, review his life. He says, all my life, I didn't see this, but now I see God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. That's amazing. Jacob would know. He was a shepherd by trade. <laughs> he, was, he would know what a shepherd is. He gets it. He knows what it's like to serve sheep. He gets it. They don't acknowledge you. They're never thankful for you, you see. They're always resisting you. He's saying, that was me. I'm so foolish. But God is so wise, and now I get it. It shaped my life. It shaped my values. You know why I've been foolish? All the times when I thought that God had abandoned me, that he was harming me, that he was constraining me, that he was killing my joy, he was actually increasing my potential and increasing my joy. And I was foolish. I was resistant. I was running from real joy, thinking I could find joy somewhere else. I was foolish, and yet God was still present. He is my shepherd all my life to this day. You know, we often say, I have a plan for my life. I, it's kinda, I have a certain trajectory. I have a plan, and God is taking it away from me. God is ruining it from me. 
a lot of times we often run from God. We run from God because we say, I have a certain plan and I'm afraid that God is not going to fulfill that. That's what we do, you see. Jacob says, I see it. I get it. Verse 16, the God who delivered me. God has delivered me, that word. He rescued me. He redeemed me. Think about this. If God, through his own son, Jesus Christ, accomplished his own saving work through the defeat and the suffering and the death and the sacrifice of his own son, you don't think that he's going to do it through your defeat, through your own sacrifices, through your suffering, through your sin, through your failures? You can't be too obsessed. You, you got, you, don't be too obsessed to try to get yourself out of it too quickly. For those of you who are suffering, trust me, I'm suffering a lot. I've been suffering for a while in my own life, okay? Don't be too quick to run from it, to find escape too quickly. Let the gospel shape your view of that suffering. Let, your gospel, let the gospel shape your view of sin and guilt and brokenness because God is going to use these things to shape you, redeem you, and give you ultimate rescue make you more like his son. He's going to rescue you from you. He's going to shape your life. Lastly, <clears throat> it shaped his obedience. How do you know, how can you know that God is your shepherd when your view of God is broken, when your view of sin and suffering and failure is broken, when your values are all broken, how can you know that God is your shepherd when you're broken like that? Verse 16, Jacob says, the angel who delivered me. That word in Hebrew means redeemed. The angel who redeemed me. In ancient times, it's a very special word. In ancient times, if a person had a debt, a debt to pay, but they couldn't pay it because it was so enormous. And the only way that you could really pay it back was to basically sell yourself off as an indentured servant. The redeemer is somebody who would come into your life, usually a family member, but somebody who would come into your life and pay the debt that you owe. That's why later on in the book of Ruth, Naomi looks at her uh, daughter-in-law and says, maybe that man Boaz could be your kinsman redeemer. He's actually a family member that could redeem everything that we lost. He could buy it back for us. And so this person would pay the debt that you owe and deliver you from slavery, essentially. Jacob says, it was this angel, the angel that maimed me, this angel that hurt me, this angel that just threw me to the ground, essentially, all night in the dark, he redeemed me, he says. He delivered me. Jacob, something must have changed in Jacob in the middle of that night. He must have experienced and saw something, a redemption, that he did not see before and something he did not deserve, he must have seen it. He must have experienced God make good on his debt because he uses that specific word. He says, that night, the angel paid back my debt. I'm on the ground, I'm crippled, but the angel must have paid, he must have made good on that debt. Somehow, it must have come at a cost to him. He could have killed me right there, but he held back. He must be paying, making good on a debt. Yes, I'm in pain. Yes, I was suffering. But it must have come at an even greater cost to God. 
All through his life, if you look at Genesis, all the major narratives of of Jacob's life, it happened in the dark. He's always kind of sneaky. He's a liar, right? So every major narrative in Jacob's life took place in the dark. It takes place in the dark or in blindness, beginning with stealing the blessing from his father, right, off of his his father from his brother. It was done. Isaac was virtually blind. All the major narratives happens in darkness. But after he wrestles with God, the very next passage after he wrestles with God the next morning, it says the sun rose above his head as Jacob walked from Peniel. That's what it says. For the first time, really. The pivotal moment in his life. Jacob learned, Jacob knew that God was doing something for him that was so costly. It must have proven to Jacob that God loved him and would never leave. Wrenched his hip forever. But God knew that God But Jacob must have known that God was giving up something far more to redeem him. He was just going on faith, just trusting that. We have an even greater resource than that, friends. Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He is the only shepherd that became the sacrificial lamb. Do you know that? Towards the end, uh, before Jesus was, uh, was arrested and crucified, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. There was bread. He says, break the bread. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, here's the wine. The wine is my blood. Spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But the cornerstone of every Passover meal is what? If you know anything about Jewish history, Hebrew history, the cornerstone of every Passover meal was the lamb. There was no lamb. Why? Because he was the lamb. He would. That Passover meal abolished all Passover meals, you see, because he is the lamb. John chapter 1, John the Baptist, waiting on Jesus, waiting on the one who would save, looks out and sees Jesus. And there in John chapter 1 says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the lamb. Later, Jesus Christ teaches, I am the good shepherd. What that means is, I am good to you. I will protect you. I will do anything for you. I will die for you. And you know how you know that? Because he did die for us. That's why we know. At Gethsemane, the night of his betrayal, Jesus is praying. And as he's praying, he's thinking about all the suffering and the rejection and the wrath of God that would pour out on him. And it overwhelmed him to the point where he says, I'm troubled to the point of death. It overwhelmed him. And basically as he's praying, he's really praying. If I can summarize what he says to God, basically what he says is, must I go through this? Do you really want me to go through this? But then he obeys. And he says, not my will, yours be done. He obeys. And he goes. We can trust that. We can trust him. You can trust his word. You can obey No one's going to understand sin. No one's going to understand your suffering. No one's going to understand the cost of obeying God more than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the cost of obedience was what? The cross. No one's going to understand. You're saying, oh, but if I obey, it's going to cost me. No one's going to understand that feeling that you have. You feel it to one degree. Jesus felt it to an ultimate degree. No one's going to understand that cost. But he trusted because you know what Jesus valued? What did he value that was so much more important than his own life, than his own world? He valued the Father's glory, and he did it for you. He valued you. 
on the cross, Jesus Christ sacrificed his own status, his own position, his own wealth, his own power, his life. He was forsaken by God, his own father. Everything. Why? So that he would have you. You were the one he valued. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm forsaken. I'm the one that's overlooked. I'm the one who's cursed. There is no deliverance for me. There's no redeemer for me. There's no shepherd for me. There's no shepherd here. There's no rescue. I'm in ultimate danger, ultimate wilderness, ultimate darkness. It actually gets dark there on the cross. Ultimate darkness. I'm lost, and yet he obeyed to the full. That's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust him. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could be found. Jesus Christ paid the price so that we could be redeemed from slavery. Jesus Christ obeyed. Why? Because in our foolishness, we could be forgiven. Jesus Christ was cursed. Why? So that we could be blessed. To the degree that you believe and trust in Jesus Christ of the Gospels, you can say, thy will be done. No matter what, in your rejection, when you're feeling overlooked, when you're feeling rejected, when you are suffering, when you are in sin, how do you trust? You know, when life is hard, and I'm telling you this from my own personal experience, when life is hard, you have to pray. You're going to hear that from a pastor, right? You got to pray. You're going to hear that from a pastor. You got to read the Bible. You got to trust. You got to let God speak to you, right? You got to trust God, right? You have to obey God, right? It's hard when you're suffering. It's very hard when you're suffering. But if you do, you know what's going to happen? It's going to push you toward an intimacy with God that you never had before because he is all you have and he's all you need. God is your shepherd, you see. It's going to push you towards an intimacy. You're going to look to Jesus Christ who forsaken the world. He became sin. He became, he suffered, he he suffered the penalty of God's wrath, and yet he obeyed fully so that you can experience the blessing and the presence of God. You've got to let that shape your decisions. Let that shape your worldview. Let that shape your values. You're in guilt, you feel guilty, or in shame, let that shape it. That means you're forgiven. You're suffering. Nothing's going to connect you to to Christ more than your suffering. You're going to connect with Jesus on the cross. It's going to bring you to an intimacy that you've never had before. It's going to shape and change your view of God, that he's not out to hurt you, that he's not abandoned you, nor rejected you. He's actually present with you, suffering with you, moving you towards a redemption that is greater than the one that you think you need. Do you trust it? Let's pray.